Hello everyone, this is Sandra True from Get Real Parental Coaching. So today we have John DiGamo. Yes ma'am. Yes, excellent. He's joining us today and he's going to be talking about his foster journey in terms of parenting, his journey as in the reasons why he decided to do what he does. So how are you doing John? Very well, thank you. How about yourself? Good. So tell the listeners about a little bit about what you do, why you decided to do that and what challenges you faced along your journey. Oh, challenges. Boy, they're daily. So I'm I'm founder and director of the foster care. I've been a foster parent myself in the United States to over 60 plus children who have come through my home. And in my house, there's no label. There's no biological. There's no adoptive. There's no foster. They're all my children. And I love them unconditionally. They're all part of my family. Uh, I've had the blessing of adopting three in the foster care system. I have three biologically as well. So we have six named DeGarmo. And all the kids who come through my home, again, are part of my family in some way. We've had them as young as 27 hours of age and as old as 18 years of age uh, from foster care. We've had as many as 11 kids in the house at the same time, including seven diapers at the same time. Wow. And seven and diapers, I think, should be illegal everywhere because that's just every 20 minutes is time to change a diaper. <laughs> I work with child welfare agencies across the United States and across the globe in trying to reform foster care system to try to make it better for children in crisis, children who have been abused. I do a lot of work in preventing and fighting against human trafficking. And I've really driven daily to make uh, life easier for children in crisis. You know, in the United States, every year there's 5 million children who experience domestic violence inside their own home every year. So, you know, we are looking at, and, and we're seeing a rise of teenage suicide globally. We're seeing a rise of teenage depression and teenage anxiety globally. A lot of that is due to what we did for these children during COVID here in the United States. Um, when we forced them to social distance, to force them to stay inside their house and not socialize with anybody. So yeah, I'm, I'm very driven daily to make the system better for children in crisis. And where did this passion come from? I can hear it in your voice. It's, um, you know, you very passionate about what you do and you're doing quite a lot really so where did the passion originally come from well i came from a couple different ways to begin with my wife's from australia we met at a performing group where we traveled the globe singing and dancing we eventually uh got married and lived in australia and our first child died of conditions called anacephaly or some pronounce it anacephaly it's a condition where the brain and skull doesn't truly form and my wife was in labor for 92 hours and i turned my back on a lot of things at that point i was filled with a lot of uh, a lot of anger. I didn't allow myself the opportunity to grieve. At that time, I thought almost three decades ago, I thought, well, men must be strong. Men don't cry. I was absolutely so I didn't allow myself time to grieve. I immersed myself in work, thinking I had to do that for my wife. Again, very foolish. So years later, we moved back to the United States. We had three elderly children, and I was teaching in a rural high school. And I noticed a lot of kids coming through my classroom who had issues of attendance, issues of behavior, issues of attendance. And I met a lot of their parents, and I realized, you know what? It starts in the home. Same time, there was, at that time, the largest child sex trafficking ring in the history of the United States, about 20 minutes from where I lived. A gentleman by the name of Dr. Malachi York, who had the Wabian Nation, and it was a cult. But what he was doing was he's bringing over a thousand plus children across state lines for child sex trafficking. So, you know, all those things led me to think, you know what? I lost a child. There are so many children by me who are in crisis, who are suffering from tremendous trauma, who are in anxiety. So I asked my wife, you know, how can we help these kids? And that led to the discussion about foster parenting, which led to my doctorate, center around foster care, which led to writing lots of books and to do what I do today. Wow. I love that story. Absolutely for what you're doing for the children. If I can just take you back then, John, when you were grieving for your own child, you know, you talked about men don't cry and have all these sort of feelings. 
How did you overcome that? I'm just finding out literally a year ago that it's possible for men to suffer from PTSD after the birth of their children or, you know, the death of their child and so forth. And that was a new thing for me. So I'm learning all the time. I'm interested in is how do dads then take the next step from feeling that way? Well, so I, you know, really what I was doing was I was blocking those feelings. I just wouldn't accept it. And uh, if you would, I kind of shoved it away. Again, I immersed myself into work. And then uh, a while later, I noticed that there was something really lacking in my life. So I started, you know, doing some digging and, and I, was, I was searching, trying these different theories and philosophies, if you will. And later on, and then moving to the United States and having my own children, when I became a foster parent, I recognized that other foster parents were suffering from grief and loss when the child leaves their home. Because when the children come to our home, they become so much part of our family. become part of our family. So when they leave, for whatever reason it might be, and it can be wonderful reasons. Maybe they're reunified. They right? may have, might have reunification, which is when the child goes back to the birth parents. It's a happy ending, if you will. So I was recognizing that many foster parents, when I was doing my study as a doctorate, suffered from feelings of grief and loss. And that's when I realized, you know what? I didn't allow myself time to grieve the death of my first child. I had grieved the kids leaving my own foster care, but I never allowed myself time to grieve. So I gave myself permission. I accepted the fact that, you know, I've not done this. I've acknowledged it, and now I'm going to allow myself time to grieve. And so I think that's important. Men need to understand, they need to accept the fact, and they need to acknowledge it, and they need to allow it. Absolutely love that. So it's about acceptance and giving yourself permission right, to be free, to let loose, to just relax, and just embrace those feelings. Right, with no shame either with no shame. And do you think that's a global men thing or a generational thing in terms of men don't cry, men are strong, they're bold? Why do you think so many men sort of tend to hold in their feelings? I think it's a bit of both. Cultural, generational, because, you know, this is historically, traditionally. Sure, I think it's a bit of both. You know, some cultures don't allow it. The men has to be the, the strong leader of the family. So historically, that's why it was in the United States. And that's how I saw it growing up in my own life. And then I've traveled the globe like you have traveled the globe and I've been in those cultures where that's part of a lifestyle. So when I talk about dads now, a lot of dads sort of say, well, they feel that the society is set up very much for women and it doesn't allow any space for dads to be dads. How have you found being a dad where you are in your society in terms of your role as a dad? It's been the most rewarding thing I've done. As a foster father myself, I've learned to cry much more, grieve much more, but I've learned to love so much more as well. You know, every child that's come to my house has made me a better parent, a better husband, a better member of society in some way and that's all because of parenting children who are coming from horrible trauma and tremendous anxiety so one of the things that i do is i feel there's something known as secondary traumatic stress compassion fatigue i love that word I love that word fatigue exhaustion from compassion from caring so much and i've experienced it in many people who are caregivers of any kind of caregivers, they experience as well. But, you know, I step back a minute and say, you know what, I have become much more compassionate and that's opened up so many opportunities for me. And it's, again, it's made me a much better person. It's a hard lifestyle. Being a foster parent, being a foster dad is a very challenging lifestyle because you're coming, you're having children placed in your home who are filled with issues of attachment, issues of trust. They may have anger management. They may have some type of anxiety or disorders. So that's challenging. At the same time, it's allowed me the opportunity to grow and to learn so much uh, caring for these troubled children. And I, I wouldn't have it any other way. 
Absolutely love that. I think at one point, me and my husband thought about fostering. What made me sort of didn't go ahead was believing the children, you know, loving them and caring for them and then they're gone. And then not, I thought, I don't know if I could have managed that personally. It was almost like another loss because you love the child. But I want to stop you right there because I hear it all the time. I hear the same thing. Dr. John, I couldn't do what you do. It would hurt too much to give the kids back. And my response, that's exactly how it's supposed to be because these children they need structure, they need consistency, they need safety. But what they need more than anything else is for somebody to love them with all of their heart unconditionally because we might be the first person who's ever loved them that way. So when they do leave, for whatever reason it might be, yes, our hearts ready. Absolutely. We grieve for them. At the same time, that's a gift. You're giving that child a gift of your broken heart because that child is going to remember years from now they might not remember a name they might not remember a face but they're going to remember that for a time in their life maybe the only time in their life somebody truly loved them and that's how we change lies children are hurting very good point yes i didn't really look at it like that but that's a good way of looking at the bigger picture as opposed to just you yourself yeah absolutely love that okay i can imagine your house is obviously busy lunch times any kind of times breakfast times how do you manage your discipline within the household and your boundaries with so many of them the number of things consistency you've got to be consistent my wife and i both have to be on the same page got to be aligned in that regard. We both have to be in agreement of parenting choices and consequences. We tell the children when they come into our home, you know, their expectations and their roles in the house to keep everybody safe, of course. And when the something is broken, when the child chooses to make a bad choice, and they make a bad choice, they make a bad decision, there's a consequence, but there's also look. You know, we love you. We sit down, discuss with them, talk to them about it, talk to them about, you know, the choices they made, the consequences that are in place, and again, that affirmation of love. Wow. And and again, it just comes back to the whole love thing, doesn't it? Whether, it? whether it's something bad they've done or they've made bad choices, you're still loving them unconditionally. That doesn't mean it's easy, though. I mean, gosh, my, my wife and I are going on, well, our oldest is 26, and I still have a 10-year-old house. And we've been parenting for 26 years now with 60 plus kids. So, you know, the consistency part is 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 so critical. Again, when you have 8, 9, 10, 11 kids in the house, even when you have 2 or 3 kids in the house, you've got to be consistent, disciplined, if you will, with your rules, with your expectations, with your consequences. Because if you don't, then you lose all of it. Children thrive on structure. They thrive on consistency. And those two things help build trust for a child who has suffered somewhere. Absolutely. And I guess you've seen it and you've practiced that year after year after year. And you see that that works. If there's one word that I use in my parental coaching is consistency. That literally comes at the top after structure, routine, choices, all those, but consistency. I'm definitely with you on there. You mentioned routine. That's so important in our house too. You know, we have that daily routine. You know, wake up in the morning, you do this, this, this before you go to school. You come up from school. The first thing we do is we wash hands, get a glass of water. My wife's a doctor nutrition, so that's very important. Homework, a bit of playtime, meal time, chore time, a bit more playtime, bath time, reading time, bedtime. That's that routine because it just makes it go so much more smoother. Children know what to expect, especially children from, from broken homes or children who have been neglected or abused. 
that routine helps to establish trust. Uh, at the same time, you've also got to be flexible. Flexibility comes in there as well because there might be a special movie or a special event or whatever it might be. You know, you can't be so rigid uh, in your routine. You've got to allow flexibility for for exciting opportunities and times for growth. Absolutely. What's the strangest thing that you've had to deal with when it comes to the children? Because they come out with all sorts of things and you have to deal with all sorts of things. Can you tell us a story about something unusual that you weren't prepared for, that you haven't done before? Yeah, if you come to mind. So my wife, she had a degree in psychology. We had three healthy children. Lost her first child. I'm teaching high school at a high school level. We went through foster parenting classes. We thought we were ready. Oh, we knew we were ready for this. No problem. How hard is this going to be? First placement came at 1030 night. Four-year-old girl and her, I think, six-month-old sister. And I recognized within 20 minutes that I'm not prepared for this. <laughs> well, I'm not ready for this. My training didn't teach me this. There was a time, there was one incident where we had um, we had these two boys, five-year-old and four-year-old. They were staying with us for about a week because their foster parents were going out of town and needed something known as respite care. The kids came to us for four to five days. And they had been sold by their, their grandfather for $500 a piece for drug money. And the foster parent told me the kids were going to curse like sailors. I thought, oh, again, I've seen all this, you know, how hard can this be? So they came to our house and I'm on the porch talking to the foster father about, you know, what kind of routine the kids have. And my wife's inside with the two boys and every other child in our house. And my wife comes out on the porch and she's got this look on her face. I thought, what's going on? And um, it turns out that one of our kids that we'd adopted. Now, if you look at our family, you're going to see we have children of all colors. In our house, there's no black or white. We're all the same color, or just different shades of God's skin. So we don't really focus on that. We focus on who you are. Nevertheless, society would call her an African-American. I tell people she's really Australian-American because my wife's from Australia. So she's coming down the stairs. She's four years of age. And the five-year-old boys, they say, hey, look, they got a little N-word. Come on, little N-word. And I said, what's going on? What's going on? So I walk in the house and the boys are in the corner. The pants pulled down. I said, what are you doing? I'm taking a leak. They said, they're urinating in my corner of my house. And I thought, oh my gosh, what do we got ourselves in for the next week? But you know what? The boys, though, they were bad kids. They were, even though they're using these horrible words, they're four and five. They don't know what these words mean. It's environment. It was all their environment. So I think to myself, what did they hear on a day-to-day basis for them to talk like that? I think to back to an 18 month old girl, the only word, only 18 months, only word she knew was shut up. Only word she knew. She hid everything in sight. So violent, so destructive. Again, environment. Or the four year old boy who had cigarette burns in the roof of his mouth and his tongue and his genitals by his mother. Again, so it's a unique lifestyle. Wow. Oh my goodness. So I'd imagine, you know, as a foster parent, you do have all sorts of stories from the children who come into your care. And I suppose the first thing you want to do is show them that you love them, get them into the routine like everybody else as quick as possible so they're on the same page as quick as possible what's the sort of longest time that you've had with a child who really struggled to adapt to your household needs and in terms of structure routine consistency almost two years wow um coming from an environment where her father was a registered sexual predator and she had been raped and her mother was a drug addict and she was living with her grandmother who was a severe drug uh, alcoholic and she had no parenting, if you will. Complete neglect. So she had issues of, of eating disorders and food hoarding. She had something known as reactive attachment disorder as well as an social engagement disorder. She couldn't read or write her own name. She lied like no tomorrow. Survival instincts. But you know what? It didn't matter. And then we had a girl in our house, 17 years of age, who had bounced from home to home to home that had all adopted. She was from Romania originally and then adopted by several families who all abused her in some way or neglected her in some way over the course of nine years. And when she arrived at our house, 17 years of age, she had huge of trust as well as she certainly should 
because every parent in your life had deserted her, including your parents who were killed, in a sense. But these families who said, we're going to love you forever unconditionally, they all abused her and neglected her in some way. So she had tremendous issues of trust for us, as well as she should, as well as she should, because, you know, as far as she was concerned, we're going to do the same thing to her. That was a difficult, rocky time as well. Well, but you got through it. Yes, yeah. She's now a child welfare worker. We're two wonderful boys that we see often, kind of like a grandparents to them, if you will. A wonderful husband. Oh, she's thriving. Don't you just love to hear those stories at the end? You know, that took a long time for her to get there. And she tested us often. But again, that's where the unconditional love comes in. Now look at the outcomes. Glorious. Oh my goodness. That must really make you feel not just happy, but just proud as well. Inspiring. Yes. Love that. So out of all your children, because obviously you've got your own children and then you adopted children out of your foster children. What made you adopt the three that you did? So in the foster care system, the United States, many other countries as well, the biological parents, if you will, have a time frame. And it depends upon where you live. That they have to uh, perform a number of things in order to have the children reunified. You know, maybe drug counseling, maybe therapy, parenting classes, stability, whatever it might be, jobs, homes, whatever might be. If they're unable to do that in that time frame, then the courts do what's called termination of parental rights, TPR. And then there's a search for an adoptive parent that's related to the child biologically. It could be a grandparent, aunt, uncle, cousin, older sibling, whatever it might be. If no one is found, you know, within that biological family, if you will, then the child's up for adoption. And most often the first, the first people asked are the foster parents. So that's how we were blessed to adopt three children because their parental rights were terminated. But let me tell you, it was something I never, ever considered, thought about thought after they became a foster parent. In fact, I never considered being a foster parent growing up. I believed that the kids were bad kids and I believed that foster parents are weird people. Yeah, that kind of, that part's a little bit true. You've really got to be a little bit unusual. Absolutely love that. And just to round up then, if you had maybe three top tips to give dads parenting now, what would they be? Patience with everything, with your allowing it, being patient with yourself, being patient with the children, being patient with the, the circumstances that life's going to throw at you, being patient with um, some of the challenges or some of the heartbreaks that are going to be going with you. Be patient, allowing yourself time to grieve to hurt. Second of all, I would allow yourself uh, as a dad to embrace emotions, embrace the sorrow, the grief, allowing yourself, it's okay to be angry or upset at times. It's okay to feel sad or hurt. And finally, recognize that as fathers, we're role models for our children and for anybody who walks into our house, you know, these kids' friends. I learned a long time ago as a foster parent that these children are watching everything I'm doing and listening to everything I'm saying. Um, and I might be the first positive example of what a dad and husband looks like, including the friends of my kids. So when their friends come over as well, you know, so many children today are coming from broken homes. So many children are coming from homes that are dysfunctional. As I said earlier, in the United States, 5 million children experience domestic violence in their house every year. Uh, human trafficking is a $150 billion global industry, which means children all across the globe and in our own neighborhoods are abused in some way, emotionally, physically, sexually, and there's the neglect, and you throw the neglect factor as well. So some of the times my children's friends are coming from homes like that as well. So I'm a role model for them as well. Again, what a dad, what a loving, caring, compassionate, patient dad looks like, and how I treat my wife. 
as well. Because my kids are going to be watching and learning from that. This is how I can be a dad. This is how I can be a husband. Or for my daughters, this is how a male should treat me. This is how my future spouse or boyfriend should be treating me with respect, with kindness, with dignity. I think those are three top things there. Dr. John DeGarmo, that was absolutely amazing. You know, you're an amazing person, both you and your wife. Absolutely amazing to do what you do. That must take a bag of patience and more and some. And of course, your unconditional love for the children as well. Absolutely love that. So I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. And where can people get hold of you if they want to have a chat or think you're saying you had some books out? Can we hear the book? Sure, sure. There's a number of books. One of them, you know, if you're really wanting to know what it's like being a, a dad to 60 plus kids uh, with all the joys and sorrows in it, there's a book called Fostering Love, One Foster Parent's Journey, which is a great book for anybody who is who wants to see an insight to what fostering adoption looks like, as well as just what it's like having a house full of a lot of kids. I have many books as well besides that, but that's a real good book. And if you're considering foster parenting, the Foster Parenting Manual, Foster Care Survival Guide, a lot of books. Person of Faith, Faith and Foster Care is a good book too. You can find all those books and more at my website, the Foster Care Institute, the Foster Care Institute, or just search for Dr. John DeGarmo, Foster Care Expert. I'm on social media, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, LinkedIn, Dr. John DeGarmo as well. You can contact me through any of those venues as well. Lovely. I'm going to make sure your details are in the show notes of this podcast so that anybody can just click on the link and bring it straight to you because I think it's really valuable what you do. It's really valuable what you have to offer. And I'm sure all that information is going to be in those books and on your website as well. So thank you so much, John. And you have yourself a lovely evening and make sure that you like this podcast, leave a review so we know what you think about it and subscribe. So take care, everyone. And I'll speak to you soon. Thank you so much. (laughs) 